Welcome back to another episode of the Property Management Show, where we deep dive into the world of property management, marketing, and entrepreneurship. Your hosts are Marie Tepman and Brittany Jones from Four and Half Marketing Agency. So Four and Half elevates property management businesses by delivering targeted marketing strategies that effectively boost owner leads. Our special guest today is none other than Rand Fishkin. Yeah. The Rand Fishkin. It's a name that's synonymous with the world of SEO and digital marketing. Many moons ago, he co-founded Moz. And if you haven't heard of it, it basically revolutionized SEO tools and education for marketers everywhere. He also is the author of Lost and Founder, a book that is a brutally honest take on the startup world and, you know, a typical journey as a founder. More recently, though, Rand has been making waves with his new venture called Spark Toro, and it's changing the way marketers like me and Brittany understand and target different kinds of audiences. So Rand, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure, Marie. Thanks for having me. And so, you know, my first question is, for the longest time, you have been a prominent voice in, you know, SEO and kind of like this data centric, like content marketing, right? Um, like always start with keywords, look at the data. Uh, but since you've left Moz and now you're, um, you've co-founded SparkToro, there's been this like pivot to basically the opposite. Can you share a bit with our audience more about this kind of pivot and their beliefs and your view on digital marketing? Yeah, sure. So I think, um, this kind of comes down to when you when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And in the you know in the world of digital marketing, there are uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of channels and opportunities to reach an audience and uh, build a compelling brand and sort of um, show off what you do. But because I was you know sort of addicted to and and grew up in the SEO world. My entire focus was always, you know, target keywords, build links, make your website accessible to search engines, uh, optimize these technical aspects and issues, all that kind of stuff. And, and I viewed everything that marketing did through the lens of SEO, you know, comparing every other channel against, well, what's the return on investment I could get from ranking for these keywords. But a few things um, are definitely true. One is over the last, especially, you know, six, seven years and exacerbated by the pandemic in the last four, almost everyone is doing pretty decent SEO, right? So if you were to take someone who maybe uh, they don't feel like they're performing very well, they're ranking barely in the top 20 or top 50 for the keywords that they care about. If you rewind 10 years, they'd have been number one, all of them. Right, because the competition just was not that fierce. SEO was this incredible opportunity for you know about fifteen years from probably two thousand to twenty fifteen. It was just remarkable what you could do if you had any sort of savvy. You could be in the you know bottom forty percent of uh, SEO skill set and still get tremendous amounts of traffic. Google was growing like a weed. All of those things have changed, right? So. Competition is way higher today. Uh, almost every savvy business owner in almost every region and country, in almost every sector and industry knows what they're doing with regards to SEO, at least the basics. 
And at the top of the market, the competition is absolutely fierce for every single term and phrase. The, the second thing is that the demand is not growing, right? Google has basically acquired every human with an internet connection. There's not a lot of growth left for them, right? They have 95% market share globally, about 91% in the United States. You know, there's not, not much room for growth. And so Google themselves has been changing the game a little bit. Over the past five years, we've seen the rate of zero-click searches, which are the searches that are solved by Google without needing to click, Mm-hmm. right? You don't have to click on anyone's results. That has skyrocketed, right? That percent is now nearly two thirds, which is great for searchers because, you know, when you're searching and you just want a quick answer, you don't want to have to click to a website. Like when was Ethan Hawke born? Or, you know, what are Bruce Springsteen's top selling albums? And, you know, Google just lists them. You don't have to go click on a site and see the ads and wait for the page to load, all that kind of stuff. So zero click search is very popular, with consumers, but insanely frustrating as a business owner, because all that content you created, Google is stealing it. They're putting it in front of your potential customers. They're taking clicks and traffic away from you. Even if you are getting some brand value from that, you don't know that you are because you can't see it, right? It's not going to be in your analytics. So look, these forces have combined to mean that SEO is not the opportunity that it used to be, certainly not the golden opportunity that it used to be. And I think if you're a creative person, an entrepreneur, you try and look for other opportunities, right? So what else in the marketing universe could I do that would give me a similar sort of competitive advantage to what I had with SEO in the early years? And so that was a long answer. No, no, no. That that was good. That was good. Um, I loved it. Yeah. I'm curious to know, when did you notice that there was this shift happening with the time? Yeah, I want to say... Probably right around the 2014, 15, 16, that's when I was still at Moz, right? I was noticing this, this change, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I think, to be honest, it was still the case that pre-pandemic, so like 2018, 19, you, there was still a tremendous amount of opportunity uh, in the search marketing field. Now, I don't know, it's a little bit like, billboard advertising in the 1980s or 90s. Like every company's doing it. You know, the rates are very high. Unless you can stand out from the crowd, you're not probably going to earn that much of a return on investment. It's super hard to measure. You know, every everyone's aware of it. Everyone's doing it. It's not, um, it's not unique the way SEO was for those years. Mm-hmm. And so um, during our recent webin- webinar of yours that I watched, you were talking about the the importance of distinguishing online platforms that are sources of influence versus entertainment. Yeah, Can you yeah. explain that concept to our audience? Because I think it's really interesting and um, I could never do as good a job as you explaining it. So oh. please do for our audience. I mean, I don't know about that, Maria. I bet if I have you on my podcast, I don't have a podcast, but if I did, I bet you'd do a great <laughs> job. Um so no, I was going to say that the, uh, you know, as we were talking about these these previous issues around SEO sort of becoming, you know, no longer this golden market opportunity, I, I bet there are several listeners who are thinking to themselves, oh, is he going to talk about TikTok, right? Because TikTok has been this massive rising trend, and to a certain extent, Instagram and YouTube Shorts as well, right? Which are um, playing on the same thing. I mean. Instagram Reels technically has significantly a significantly larger and more um, uh, 
sort of advertising functional uh, audience than uh, even TikTok does. But those sources of influence, which I think is a you know reasonable thing to call those channels, are very particularly focused on entertainment, right? So the the content there is not similar to the content that you might see if you are um, doing like SEO kinds of things or uh, B2B content marketing, or even participating in other platforms like um, a Reddit, a LinkedIn, a YouTube, turned into a copy a of mess. Truth Social. Um, <laughs> uh, threads, actually, Threads is kind of replacing Twitter for a ton of people. I think yeah. about 100 million active users and, and their behavior looks a lot more like old Twitter's behavior. So this is essentially... If you think about those platforms, right, like a LinkedIn, Reddit, YouTube, Threads platforms, there's a lot of niche interests that are serving niche functions, right? So you might find uh, botanists in the UK who all cluster around a few accounts, podcasts, YouTube channels, subreddits, um, Threads accounts, LinkedIn accounts, and they... They sort of follow the same sources. They have these conversations about what's going on in that field. That's not what happens on TikTok, right? So at TikTok, what happens is I am looking for something to distract me for seven to 70 seconds and then see another thing that will distract me for seven to 70 seconds. And interestingly with TikTok, you might say to yourself, but I can follow people on there. Isn't the following behavior still valuable? Like don't botanists cluster around? No, they don't cluster around anything, right? Botanists, like any of us are like, ooh, person dancing with the chipmunk, then person dancing with a squirrel, like fun, like follow. And whereas if you were to follow a YouTube channel, right? Subscribe to a YouTube channel, mm -hmm. YouTube will show you when new videos from that channel come out right? If you subscribe to a subreddit, posts from that subreddit will appear on the homepage of your subreddit feed. In fact, your whole feed will just be mm -hmm. posts from the subreddits you've subscribed to, and maybe ones that they recommend that they think are also related to those. Uh, same thing is true in threads, right? The for you will show you stuff that's similar to what you've engaged with before, and it will show you stuff from people you follow that have earned engagement. TikTok is unique uh, in this way, in particular, because they prioritize showing things that are likely to keep you addicted to TikTok. So like scrolling to the next video, next video, you only have a very small chance to see the things that you've actually followed. So for example, you know, Brittany, if I followed you on TikTok, I don't know if you have a TikTok account, let's pretend you do. Uh, if I follow you on TikTok, TikTok might be 1% more likely to show me videos from you, you know, um, uh, short posts from you, than they ordinarily would. And so the, the TikTok followership is the lowest value of any social network that has existed to this time. And it sort of fits with that entertainment mindset. That's what I'm really talking about, Marie, when it comes to entertainment network versus uh, source of influence or um, place where you have relevant conversations. And if you're a marketer, for example, in, in property management world, you probably care much less about reaching the broadest possible audience for a few seconds with a brand impression mm -hmm. versus being present in a highly relevant space where highly relevant conversations are going on, right? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> so what would I generally say, right, if you're trying to um, attract property owners to your rental management company, should you be on TikTok? I would put that very low on my list generally. That's not to say that there's not somebody who's probably doing an okay job with it and reaching the right folks and all that, but I would put that very low on my list. I probably would put things like LinkedIn or Reddit or uh, Threads or YouTube, um, building an email newsletter, getting on relevant podcasts, being present on other people's YouTube channels, right? I'd put all of that stuff in front of the entertainment network side. Yeah, I think there's this, um, you know, bright and shiny thing complex. And also you have other voices in the industry like Gary Vee's like, you know, get on the platform before anyone else can. And I feel like um, you should take that kind of advice with a grain of salt because Gary Vee is speaking to the broadest audience, right? Like if you are making, I don't know, like handmade wallets on in your in, in your garage and you're trying to sell them because you have this unique feature like maybe tiktok is the way to get sales because it's like it you you don't have a market yet like you have the potential to reach people who don't know this exists and who may need it and not realize but if you are in especially i think b2b or in service businesses i feel like it's so specific that if you're if you're putting all your money and effort in a platform like TikTok and you might see like, hey, I'm getting followers, but are those the types of people who would actually be working with you? I feel I feel like that's like really interesting point yeah. of view. I, I think that that's exactly part of the problem. And I'd also say, you know, when it comes to Gary Vee or folks like him, right? His marketing agency works with the world's biggest consumer brands, consumer, right? So yeah. he's talking to whatever DreamWorks animation about like their new movie and promoting that or P&G about promoting, you know, Dove soap or whatever it is, right? So like extremely broad audience, brand matters a lot, even if you only see, you know, whatever latest product from Dove for five seconds in the middle of a TikTok reel, Great. You know, like that's actually a useful brand touch for them. They have their calculations of like how much lift is created by broad brand impression. Fine. Wonderful. But that's not you, right? That's not, that's not your type of marketing. And so I think that, um, that type of universal advice, anytime I hear it, I get very nervous and concerned, right? Essentially it is great for building an audience um, and it creates sort of the psychological panic among marketers that makes them think, oh man, I really have to do this thing and I should keep listening to this person and I need to chase this trend. And that's not actually true. Marketing fundamentally is about going to the right places with the right message at the right time and reaching the right audience, which means you can wait right? If ChatGPT never takes off as a consumer platform for, you know, discovering answers to property management, rental, you know, property management questions, you don't really need to do ChatGPT marketing then, right? It's sort of like saying, gosh, you know, do I need to be thinking about uh, conference and event marketing? Well, have you already confirmed that your audience is going to those conferences and events and that and, and how they learn about new products and make brand decisions. And does that happen at events? And if the answer is no, 
you, you don't have to chase that trend any more than you have to chase any other trend. And so I, I just worry that when things become popular, people think they're supposed to be part of them. This is not true. Yeah. So speaking of, um, you know, like you were alluding to like attribution and, mm -hmm. um, you know, Brittany and I started working at this like teeny tiny marketing agency called Four and Half around the same time. That was like almost nine years ago. And I remember, you know, the core, the core of our business is like organic marketing. And ever since we were interns, we've always heard our customers complain about the lack of direct attribution of content marketing and leads that they get. And it, there came a time where we tried to take on this big project of creating like a dashboard. We were going to, you know, find a way to perfectly attribute the ROI that content marketing gives. Like we were going to like do this like revolutionary thing. I got into uh, marketing science. Um, you know, I was working with a professor from the Rotterdam School of Management to try to understand like marketing analytics and LT, um customer lifetime value and how to map it to sources. And it's so funny because I went down that road to try to per perfectly um, attribute marketing sources, mar organic marketing channels to lifetime value. And then um, when I started sharing data with them, anonymized data, they said, "You, your sample size simply is not big enough. So I was like, we're talking about, I have about like a thousand um a thousand customers in my data set. And they said, we need about, um, about 20 cohorts and each cohort has to be about that size. So you only have one over 20 of, you know, 20th of the size that we need to do this kind of analysis. And I'm just like, but we deal with small business owners. No one's going to have that many customers. We're talking about like big multi-million dollar businesses. And so I said, so I, I asked the professor, like, so what would you recommend I do? Like as a small business owner, if I only have one cohort, basically. Yeah. And she said, sometimes when you cannot rely on data, you have to rely on your gut. And I'm like, what? What? Mm -hmm. And I so I had to hold Marie's hand for a few minutes after that. I was like, I just wasted a year of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a smart professor. <laughs> she is absolutely right. Yeah. Because she said, she said, like, you can do the analysis, but given your small sample size, you're, it's not going to be statistically relevant. Like you cannot make um, like broad, um, kind of like broad statements about your cohort because you're just one cohort. So it's like, you can still do the analysis, but just know that like what you find for that one customer is for that one customer. And then you kind of have to trust your gut. Like, well, how many of the customers do I think it's like this? You cannot just say like cohort A spends this much and, you know, they have success in, you know, these channels and stuff like that. Because I just, you know, like if I do that, she said, you can't trust the data because there's not enough data points. So then you trust your gut. And so I was telling Brittany, I was like crying. I was just like, I just wasted my life. And it's like, it amounts to anything. Really she was like crying to be fair, but she was like, ah, well, I was crying inside. I cried after our call. Okay. But, okay. but so interesting um, <laughs> that I kind of felt defeated. And then I stumbled upon your more recent content talking about marketing attribution and about how like first, like, attribution is like kind of fair game for multi-million dollar businesses who have all the money to invest 
in specific attribution, like channels, you know, formula software. But for small businesses, like it's almost like, are you going to spend time and money trying to nail down attribution or are you just going to spend the money trying to find unique ways to grow your business? So that really, really resonated with me. And I was kind of selfishly like, hey, okay, like I didn't waste my life. Uh, (laughs) And so... Um, can you talk more about like the attribution problem that I know you've talked about in your um, recent content, but like for the benefit of our audience, like give them an overview of kind of like this, this problem that we have with marketing attribution. Sure. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's two problems here. One is that channels that have an incentive from sort of the platform or network level to show you attribution will always be overweighted. As an example, uh, Google or meta advertising or TikTok for that matter, they will show you fantastic data in a dashboard about every ad that you buy, people who saw that ad, how many of them eventually visited your site, how many of them eventually converted, right? If you put the, the tracking pixel on your site and the um, you know, conversion uh, event in your analytics, that their channels are going to look like they contribute a ton of marginal new business to you. And yet, I have never, ever worked with someone who shut off their advertising and didn't see that almost all those conversions came through anyway. So they were like, huh, wait, 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 wait. we were spending you know, $10 million last quarter on uh, Facebook ads. And we, we decided to shut it off for a month just to see what, what's the marginal contribution. And we got about 91% of the same amount of conversions that we were seeing. It just, they came through anyway. So what was happening there? And what was happening was Facebook and Google and Instagram and TikTok and Reddit and LinkedIn and a bunch of these platforms, Apple, Apple, especially now, and Amazon, they are extraordinarily good at knowing what customer journeys look like, right? They have a tremendous amount of data about where people go on the web and what they do on the internet because of their ubiquity. And so they can do a great job of making sure that your advertisement is seen, whether that's a pay-per-click ad or a... um, you know, retargeting ad, remarketing, uh, display ad, whatever kind of digital advertising we're talking about, they will make sure that that is seen somewhere along the journey of many people who they know are likely to become your customer. Because why would you work hard to make more new sales when you could just take credit for sales that were already going to happen? That's the entire model of, of digital advertising. And for a long time, especially in the era of sort of cheap money, right, that we've had the last 20 years um, until this, this recent like Fed inflation crackdown, you, CMOs and chief revenue officers and uh, CEOs were all instructed growth at all costs, right? You, you've got to grow, not be profitable, Profitability, eh, that will kick that can down the road to some other time period. The important thing to do is to grow. And so no one was willing to risk losing 2%, 5%, 10% of marginal growth in exchange for a much more profitable business because they weren't spending on advertising. Now, obviously, things have changed, um, even, even for those big companies. But if you're a small business, if you're a medium-sized business, if you care about profitability 
This has always been a boondoggle, right? It has always been the case that Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, right? They are taking credit for adver- for uh, conversions that would have happened anyway. And you don't know how many until you shut it off. Do they create new demand? Yes, some. Do they create nearly as much demand as they say they're creating? Absolutely not. And simultaneously, those big platforms also control how you can track and measure attribution for organic investments, right? So Google decided in, what was that, 2014, 15, no more keyword data if you're not paying us, right? They used to tell you every keyword that Mm -hmm. someone came to your site with, what page they landed on, what search term it was for, right? And so you could could say, oh gosh, you know, we're getting a lot of searches for X. X is sending us this much traffic. This much of that traffic eventually converts. We should try and rank for more similar phrases to that and all that. That's gone, right? They now have Google Search Console, which doesn't tell you nearly with the uh, efficacy or accuracy or attribution attribution ability uh, that, that it used to be when it was provided right in the referral. Same thing, if TikTok sends you a visit, right, through the profile link click, it shows as direct because TikTok hides the referrer string. They will not tell you that you actually got a visit from that person who clicked on that. The same is true for about 15% of all LinkedIn traffic, it's true for all Facebook Messenger, it's true for Slack, it's true for, uh, what is it, Mastodon. There's this huge dark social problem where essentially a ton of the traffic that is technically being passed from these networks is hidden so that you don't know that it came from those networks. Very strange to me. I I would want to provide that attribution if I were them, but this is, uh, I think it's a bias toward paid, right? This is why you should pay us to advertise because then you will see all the tracking. And there's a lot of directors of marketing and clients and CMOs and CEOs who will not believe you, right? Who will look at the direct bucket and be like, well, that's just people typing in our website. That's just brand, right? Everything else, you know, I want to see the attribution for it. (laughs) So this problem has always existed. It's always been a challenge to determine like what actually changed a consumer or business owner's mind and got them to buy. You you can do all the sophisticated measurement you want. And I kind of don't believe any of it. I believe in lift based measurement. I think that works, right? So like I invested this in this channel and I saw this amount of lift. But if you're telling me, oh, you know what? Paid search should be responsible for 18.5% of this one conversion. And then organic search should be responsible for 7.2% of this conversion. And brand is responsible for 30.9%. Oh, get out of here. That's pseudoscience. I I I don't buy it at all. If we're talking about not even multi-million, but if we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars a year of advertising spend, you can, in aggregate, make reasonable estimates about that kind of thing. And anything below that, nope. Even even in the tens of millions of dollars, I've never seen a model I thought was compelling. I remember, Brittany, didn't we have, I remember we had a client before, uh, back when we were like account managers still. And you know, it was the same problem. They were like very data driven with the way they were running their business and they worked with us. They were happy. Um, but they said, we just couldn't prove that 
our success was because of you guys. So they quit. And after seven months, they came back and we said, what happened? They said, more than one client. That's, I can't even tell you how many people have done that, which is good. They literally literally said, yeah, they, they literally said, we don't know, but our leads just stopped. And it's almost like you don't have to prove every attribution. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, this is what I'm talking about when I say lift based measurement, right? What's frustrating to me is that people believe the Google ads dashboard, the Facebook ads dashboard, the Amazon ads dashboard so religiously that they take that model and then apply it to organic and content and email and social and brand and SEO and all of these other things. And they say, you have to prove your worth the same way Google proves their worth to me. But they never, not never, but rarely do they shut off their Google ads and then say, wait a minute, Google was lying to me about nine and a half times out of 10. Mm-hmm. We all know they do, right? It's, it's very obvious. I, I have yet to meet a business owner who, when I philosophically have this discussion with them, they're, they're not in agreement, right? Almost everyone agrees philosophically, but then when they get into their practices, into the weeds of how they do their marketing, suddenly it becomes a, wow, but I, how can I reliably invest in that and, and choose it? I, you know, I've been saying this for a little while now, but I think we have to go back to was it the, the, the Wanamaker quote from the 20th century of, I, I know that I'm wasting half my advertising spend, but I don't know which half. <laughs> and I would encourage you to waste half of your marketing spend and not worry about which half is being wasted, but put it into channels and sources of influence that you believe reach your audience and are compelling and occasionally test shutting things off to see which ones produce lift and decline. That's This is the only way to truly sort of logically invest. If you're just reliant on attribution dashboards, uh, you are being lied to by a combination of sort of, you know, software products and big advertisers in the tech field or, or big advertising platforms in the tech field. If you do decide to turn something off to see, right, like what the impact is, is there a timeline that you'd recommend, like, wait three months, wait six months? What does that look like? Uh, Totally depends on the business. So, you know, for example, in um, high volume, low price point consumer goods, 30 to 60 days is fine. In high price point, long term services contracts with... um, you know, significant research and investment time put into it by a business. Three months, six months is probably the minimum. Um, usually you don't have to go longer than six months for anything, right? Because you will yeah. see just to the point you were talking about with your clients, Brittany, those leads will start to dry up, right? They'll see the top of the funnel shrinking, right? Traffic shrinks, number of lead forms filled out shrink, all that kind of stuff before they even see the conversions dry up. Mm-hmm. So they have that kind of Hey, we're we're looking at that. So, my rough rough estimate in sort of you know B two B services world, sixty to ninety days, um, and you don't have to shut it all off, right? If you're very nervous about mm-hmm. this, cut off half of it, right? Go okay, we're spending you know our, our pay per click searches, for example, 
right? Google pay-per-click searches. We are bidding on our brand name. We're bidding on some competitors' brand names. We're bidding on sort of things that we have historic guesses, right? And competitive mm -hmm. intelligence are probably relatively low return on investment compared to some of our other spend, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, whatever we're bidding on, I don't know, property management plus our geography. And like, we think, you know, we think that's a pretty good term and we can see the clicks from that. And okay, you could test turning that off for 30 days if you wanted to, right? And just just see, right? Just to see like, okay, how how much marginal contribution is that really responsible for? But I might instead, you know, take the 50% that's like, okay, our brand name, our competitor's brand name, some terms outside of our geography, some broader terms and phrases that are related to content, but not related to the product that we sell. We're going to shut those off for 60 days. We're going to see what that looks like. Oh yeah, okay, we can see that you know, that amount of traffic, right? Maybe the, the traffic that that was driving is down 20%, but weird organic is up 12%. Oh, okay. Those people were going to click on us anyway. And it's just that the, the paid search ad appears above our organic listing and looks more compelling because that's what Google wants. Right. And so they're charging. Anyway, you, you get the idea. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting. Um, because that like typically, right, like everyone wants to rank for the money keyword, which is in our industry, it's like property management, your geography, right? right? And so there's this obsession with, okay, if you're doing content marketing for me, when can I expect to be number one, right? And it's like, there's this obsession with like, oh, but my competitor down the road has been in business for 30 years, but their content sucks. Their website sucks. I have better page experience. Why are they ranking number one? And then they kind of don't even pay attention to the fact that, well, ever since we started doing content marketing, you've been ranking for more and more long-term searches. And like you are getting leads, but there's this obsession with number one. And so, you know, like, given that we're talking about like attribution and also sources of influence, like what can you say about that kind of mentality with like business owners who are like, you know, cause okay. Caveat that like, there is a difference when you're high up on Google search for your money keyword, but it's like, how would you explain to a small business owner? Um, leads kind are of, like, increasing, right? Like yeah, leads are yeah. increasing, but your ranking isn't increasing for that perfect keyword that you magically I mean, would rank number one for. In my opinion, that is a far superior strategy. If you're getting more leads and you don't have to show your competitors that it's because you rank for these sort of vanity terms that are, you know, that everyone's chasing, you, you have a golden calf, right? Like you really are in a wonderful position compared to them because you're not at risk of this one, you know, one uh, new competitor can take me out or Google changes the way the results work, or they instantly answer the search with like a, you know, um, zero click. Yeah. Yeah. AI generated result or zero click search, or they put seven, you know, paid searches above that, or the maps box goes above or below where it was before. Like any of these things can completely take out someone who's reliant on those, you know, high value sort of two or three money keywords in their geography. But if you have a long tail of traffic coming from a bunch of different sources, 
people are referring folks to you, your brand is strong, you're getting stuff from social networking, and you're getting stuff from people subscribe to your email newsletter, and you're getting value from people who are finding you via podcasts and events and YouTube channels and all this kind of stuff. Your competitors are never even going to know how you're kicking their butt, right? Mm -hmm. Google, it's right out there for everybody to see. You can see exactly how to beat you. So I, I don't understand the obsession with it. I do understand the obsession with it, right? There, it, that um, vanity is a powerful psychology, mm. right? Being, there are people who absolutely, uh, and, and plenty of business owners and entrepreneurs are among them. I hope you don't have to work with any of them, but uh, who would happily take a 20 or 30% cut in their business in exchange for more visibility, right? The ability to like show their whatever network, right? Their golf buddies, I'm number one, right? Because looking good is more important to them than performing well. Yeah. So if that's the case, and I have, you know, in my consulting years, I worked with clients who were like this. Um, I remember a, an art gallery owner, an extremely wealthy and deeply problematic one, who was like, I don't care about anything except having, do you remember the old Google toolbar page rank? They used to, they used to show page rank in the Google toolbar. He just wanted a 10 out of 10. Oh. That was all, right? Nothing else. I don't care about how much traffic I get. I don't care about selling my art. I'm not trying to... I just want, we have a seven out of 10 today. You get me to 10 out of 10 in, on, on page rank. We got him to a nine, but you know, it was just. Never good enough. I yeah. mean, it was just, just <laughs> it was a stupid goal, right? Like, like what did this do I, for I, you? Yeah, right? it does. Yeah. The only thing it did was I want to show my buddies, right? My like other rich friends who seem to care about Google toolbar page rank, I don't know, you know, whatever, 2007, eight, um, that I'm, you know, my toolbar, my, my toolbar is longer than their toolbar, <laughs> right? That was the yeah. whole, that was the entire <laughs> goal of the campaign. And I, I think, uh, I think they spent a hundred thousand dollars with us to do it. Right. Cause we were like, this is going to be insanely difficult and a little bit, we're going to have to do some sketchy stuff <laughs> like to get you yeah. there, but Hey, yeah, yeah, at all costs. Right? Yeah, that, that was exactly uh, that was exactly what this what this guy wanted. Okay, okay, that was a lot of information, wasn't it? So we'll pause right here. Now, stay tuned for part two of our conversation in our next podcast episode. That's where we will continue our discussion with Rand Fishkin on money keywords, vanity metrics, and of course, we're going to delve into generative AI. We will also talk about how to make the immeasurable measurable. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as a reminder, this podcast is brought to you by Four and Half Marketing Agency. We help property managers get more owner leads through marketing so we can help with websites, SEO, online reputation, videos, blogs, social media, paid advertising, you name it, we can help you. Visit our website fourandhalf.com to learn more. That's F-O-U-R-A-N-D-H-A-L-F.com. So thanks for tuning in and see you in part two.